Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. Before we jump into this episode, I'd like to run a few things by you. The Arizona Deer and Sheep Draw is open, and it will close June 8th. It's coming up quick. Um, Aside from guided hunts, Days in the Wild Outfitters offers a tag application service. So if you need help planning your tag strategy, or you just need help navigating the system, we've got you covered. I also want to extend a special offer to my listeners of $500 off any guided or any fully outfitted deer and sheep hunt uh, for those who apply with us. So if you apply with us, we'll knock off 500 bucks off your guided hunt if you decide to hunt with us. Uh, Just mention the show when you give us a call. The deadline is coming up quick, June 8th. So give us a call at 480-772-6847. Let's get to this episode. First thing you got to do is learn how to hunt elk. The calling is just another tool to add to your arsenal to help aid in your hunting of the elk. It doesn't mean that every time you make a call, that bull's going to come to you. Right. So you, by, by learning how to hunt and understand their behavior, you can create a situation to happen and make it more successful. As soon as you call from the top and you get an answer, then you've got to drop down to get that wind in your favor. You've got to cut over the hill and get down and not stay on top. Because you got to remember you're, you're standing on top of the ridge and everything exactly is, you know, 180 degree left and right. And behind you is where you've come from. And usually the elk aren't there. So everything you're dealing with is kind of in front of you off a 180-degree pattern. I have found that most of the guys that say that they all they do is cow call is because they haven't learned how to bugle and don't have the confidence in the bugling. Cow calling is a lot easier to master. I just want this younger generation to appreciate what we had to go through to learn. We didn't have nobody to teach us. We didn't have computers. We didn't have videos. Yeah. We had to get out there and bust our butt and figure it out. And then we figured it out and we're transferring that information to you guys. And so many younger generation is basically just wanting to erase history and not have that stuff out there for them to be available. And I guess take credit for it, I guess. What's up days in the wild nation. Before we get into this next episode, I have a couple of favors to ask of you. I know you heard me say it before, but please take a few moments and go give us a review on iTunes. It really helps me reach more people, helps my ratings, which ultimately helps me keep this podcast free and create content for you guys. If you could also go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags, check out their line of shooting and hunting products. A lot of game-changing stuff on there. Uh, And if you use promo code John Stallone, you'll save 20%. John Stallone, all one word. Lastly, if you've been listening to the show, you know that uh, Days in the Wild Podcast and Days in the Wild Outfitters have partnered with Primos. We love their trail cameras, love their ground blinds. We use some of their calls, assortment of other little gadgets here and there. Um, Go check them out. Tons of stuff on their website. If you use promo code STL02, you'll save 15%. Thanks for tuning in and let's jump into this next episode. Hi, welcome to Days in the Wild Big Game Hunting Podcast, brought to you by Phoenix Shooting Bags. Today, we're going to talk about solo elk hunting, talk about some different setups, 
uh, calling situations that things you could do. And also talk a little bit about, you know, thinking ahead about what to do with a you know, big animal like that and so on and so forth. We got Rocky Jacobson on with us and, uh, Rocky's coming, coming to us from the, uh, from the Turkey woods. He was actually just in a ground blind and we were talking and it started raining and it got a little too loud. <laughs> we were almost, we were almost going to catch uh Rocky, uh, whack a, whack a Tom with his bow on, uh, on the show. But unfortunately, uh, it started raining on him. So we're, uh, now we're up you. You said you're up in your shop now. Yeah. I, I got a piece of property here that's surrounded by a lot of other pieces of property. So I got about 250 acres here oh, nice. that I can hunt and, uh, yeah, it's private ground and, uh, it's, it's still turkey hunting. Turkeys are, you know, fun no matter if it's public land or private ground, it's just kind of, nice for me to be able to hunt out of the house when I, on situations like today where I got to do a podcast with you, you know, and I got to have reception. So I stuck around the house today to see what was going on. And I've got toms around here, but they're just like all the other birds. They're hard to get to come to at times. So Yeah. Yeah. But, well, that's awesome. The, the rain got hit in the top of the blind so bad that that's all you could hear was the pitter patter and you couldn't hear us talking. Yep. So, so I hiked back up over the hill and got in the shop and we can talk away now. Nice. Nice. Just a real quick rundown. You've been on the show before and most people know who you are, but just give us a quick rundown about yourself and then uh, we'll kind of hit it. Okay. I was the founder of Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls and uh, I ended up selling my business a little over a year ago, about a year and a half now. Uh, the business still remains the same. I'm still on board. Uh, I'm behind research and development and also a lot of PR work. So public relations, just promoting the calls, things like that. I'm 69 years old now, and I decided it's about time to kind of kick back a little bit and enjoy what I've got left and spend some more time with the wife. Nice. Uh, so I let kind of the business go, but I'm still part of it. Cool. So. Cool. Yeah. Well, he's, he's been a little modest. So Rocky's kind of one of, not only founded the company, you're also one of the guys that kind of developed elk, elk hunting calls from the get-go. You were in that mix. You know, there's, yeah, I was kind of one of the, I guess you call the forerunners. I did develop and design the pallet plate dome type elk mouth diaphragm call uh, which was kind of a unique invention uh, most diaphragms are open on both sides of the frame so you have to use the roof of your mouth to guide the latex up and and the travel distance of that latex goes towards the roof of your mouth mm -hmm. uh, so by adding that pallet plate or dome as you want to call it on top that give you more control of the latex flow uh, it made the diaphragm stand up in the correct position so it directs the airflow a lot easier between your tongue and the latex. Uh, also gets rid of your gag reflexes because now you can move the call further forward instead of having it in the back of your mouth. Right, right. I cannot blow on a freaking on a diaphragm that doesn't have a dome to save my mm -hmm. life. 
Like I, I, I just can't do it. I sound like a, you know, I sound like a turkey. <laughs> you know, it's tough. Even though I started out on an open-sided diaphragm and switched, you know, design the palette plate and went over to it, I go back to that open-sided one and I can still make cow sounds, but I can't get the control of the bugle as good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wonder how in the heck I was able to do it in the first place. <laughs> yeah, muscle memory it will probably come back if you play with it enough, but yeah, it's just... Uh... Yeah, I gotta really, well, really I, I gotta really, really work at it to get a good sound. Yeah, and I think that's the way it is with anybody that uses a, an open sided diaphragm. You gotta pay attention to your pressure, mm-hmm. your tongue, and the airflow at the same time. And what that does is, when you get excited when an elk's coming, then you kind of lose train of thought, and you can screw up a call a lot easier. Where this palate plate and dome type call gives you that opportunity to, you know, get away with a lot more stuff when you're excited and you don't have to think as hard. Right. Right. So, so um, yes. let's talk about hunting by yourself. There's, you know, obviously there's things to consider. Let's, let's talk about some of the things to consider before we even get in the woods about hunting out on your own. Okay. You know, Probably out of all the elk I've shot with my bow, maybe two of them, I've had somebody else call in for me. So the solo type hunting is kind of my expertise, as you want to call it, I guess. Uh, and uh, I've killed most of my elk by myself, and it's a challenge. Hmm. It's uh, it's very hard to get those elk to commit and come that extra 50, 75 yards and not hang up out there. and. And you, it's hard to get them to present a broadside shot when you're by yourself. Most of the time, if they are close, it's going to be a frontal shot or a rear end shot. And he's rolling taken off because he's spotted you. Right, right. You know, you know it is, it's a tough game to play, but throughout the years, I have figured out some different strategies that have helped me tremendously to be able to do it by myself. And you know, everybody kind of asks me, why do you hunt by yourself? Why don't you got lots of people that love to hunt with you, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I do, I do call out for other people. I spend a lot of time doing that, but when I'm by myself and I'm up front doing the shooting, it, it's, it's not that they're not good callers and it's not that they know what they're doing, but there's times I feel like, come on, you need to call now. And it doesn't happen. And then I get frustrated with the person behind me mm. doing the calling. And I have learned through the years the sounds that elk make, their body language means something to them, and it also means something to me now. And I know when I need to move, I know when I need to call, I know which sounds to make. And it makes a tremendous difference out there in the woods when you're able to learn that. Yeah. Well, I always tell people, like, learning elk behavior I think, mm-hmm. or or anything really that you're hunting, behavior of the animal is more important than than anything because it's going to you, know, you can you can get by with you know speaking about elk calls you know you could get by with being a mediocre caller meaning making mediocre sounding but you best served by you know learning their their behavior because you can you can play on that more than you can on you know, the actual calls itself. 
Yeah, that's that's totally correct. You know, first thing you got to do is learn how to hunt elk. The calling is just another tool to add to your arsenal to help aid in your hunting of the elk. It doesn't mean that every time you make a call, that bull's going to come to you. Right. So you, by, by learning how to hunt and understand their behavior, you can create a situation to happen and make it more successful. Yep. Yep. I've, uh, I've, I found that in my, in, I don't consider myself a, a, an expert in calling or an expert in elk hunting for that matter, but, you know, my understanding of elk behavior and my woodsmanship have often done me the most justice far, far right. beyond my calling ability, you know? And, yeah, uh, but you kind of hit the nail on the head. You don't have to sound the best elk caller in the woods, but one thing you do need to learn to do is put some emotion into your calling. In other words, don't be stuck on one sound. Mm-hmm. Learn to change it up a little bit. A couple things happen there when you learn to change it up. The elk can't key in on that one particular sound, a repetitious sound, as easily. You know, when you do things over and over and over the same way, they kind of like lose attention to you because there's no, there's no drama built in it. Where if you can learn to put emotion into it, make them think that there's really something going on that they're missing out on, you have a better shot at calling them in. Right. So let's, uh, let's get you to walk us through some, some different scenarios. Okay. Here. Okay. You're in the woods. You got a, bull you know you got a bull located he's piping off what are you what are you doing as a solo hunter to get this bull on the ground i'm gonna add a little more to your scenario sure Um, most of most of the time when i hunt i like to cover a lot of ground that means going you know from canyon to canyon to canyon trying to find a bull that's hot and usually the best way to cover that ground is run your ridge tops and bugle off either side of your canyons and try to locate them because your sound carries better for one thing, and you also can cover more ground than you can going up and down the bottom of each canyon. Right. So I spend a lot of time just running the tops of ridges, bugling, and and sometimes I will spend a little more time in one canyon than I will another, and that's because of maybe thermals are better there, maybe there's more elk sign there. Most of the time, it's because I know the country and I know where the elk like to hang out. So I will spend time in those areas where I know they like to hang out a little more than I would if I went through an area that I went, oh, I only heard one bull in there in the last 10 years. <laughs> you know? Right, right. right. Um, so I'm walking across the top of the ridge and I'm checking the wind. And of course, early in the morning, the terminals are always going down. So I'm playing that scenario that all the elk I'm listening to are going to be out in front of me and down on both sides. So I get up on top and I bugle. And the first bugle that I like to do is what we call a location call. And yeah, we're trying to locate elk, but this location call has a little different sound and means a little different to the elk. And it's a non-aggressive sound. Uh, Most of the time I do it in a two-note stage, just kind of hit a little bit of a high note into a higher note. And then I just tail off with some little toodaloos at the end. And sometimes I chuckle at the end. Sometimes I don't. But if I do, I just don't do a lot of aggression on it. And uh, I'll do a location call for you right now. So you kind of got the idea what I'm talking about. Sure. 
That's not real aggressive, you know, it's just kind of clean. But those sounds carry really good in the woods. And it also makes the animal, the other elk, more at ease. If you were to throw a challenge call out there, one of those high screaming airy vicious sounds, mm-hmm. you don't know what you don't know what attitude that bull is in. You may just scare the heck out of him and he won't say a word and just leave. Mm-hmm. You know? And again, it may work too. He may be pissed off and hot and come flying, but as a general rule, I like to do those location calls until I get an answer. And uh, if I don't get answers, sometimes I will change it up into a little more aggression, just see what happens. But as a rule, that's what I start off with. Now we can pretend I did that location sound on the top ridge and off to my right, down in the bottom of the draw, at the head end of a basin, I get a bull dancer. And he comes back with pretty much the same sound. Ooh, nothing aggressive. Mm-hmm. That tells me right there that he is just wanting to know where I'm at, uh, knowing what I'm wanting to do. He's kind of dislocating me also. He's not aggressive. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to check the wind, which pretty much normally I know it's going to be going downhill. But as I'm going up the canyon, it also is going to come into my face a little bit. Here's the problem most people have when they're hunting by themselves. They'll get an answer and they'll jump behind a tree right now and try to call that bull to them right there. They don't move very far. They get off the side five, ten feet and uh, start bugling. And the bull comes and here he comes, here he comes, but he's coming lower. He's coming around you. And pretty soon he's right even with you and the wind is going down and he's got you. He's got your wind and he's out of there. He becomes silent. Mm. So Here's what I like to do. Once I get an answer, I will drop down that hill probably halfway between the bottom and where he called from. What I want to do is get that bull to commit and come up the ridge or the hillside a little bit more on the same level that I am instead of trying to sweep down underneath me and get my win. And The reason I like this is because once he gets on the same level or I get on the same level as that bull, that gives me the opportunity to move up the hill or down the hill, depending on what the wind is doing as I'm working that bull. And the same thing happens to him. He's going, all right, I got an opportunity here to keep the wind in my favor also as I'm working towards that other bull. It's not the fact that they think they're coming to a human call. But they're coming to another elk, and another elk can whoop their butt. Right. You know, can come in and horn them and do some damage, and they don't like that. So they want to keep track of their, their enemy. And uh, as they're coming in, they want to make sure things are up to par. Uh, they just like to smell their what they're going after before anything. Noise isn't quite so critical, but smell is and sight. Yep. Those are two more critical than just sound. Oh, smell first, see second. Here, third. So, as I'm working that bull, here's something that I really stress on, is when I call from a spot and that bull is out there 200 yards and he's answering me, I'm not going to work directly straight towards him. As soon as I call, I'm going to move ahead, but down the hill in a half-moon angle sweep towards that bull. And the reason for that, because I know that he's going to do the same thing to me as he's coming in. He's going to sweep down. 
to get the wind in his favor. So I move downwind also without making any noise. I don't call no more. And I get out there, you know, sometimes it can be 30 yards, 40 yards, depending on the terrain, depending on your setup. But I at least try to move at least 10 yards forward and downwind. And something to really remember is from between you and that elk, you want to keep that area completely scent free. So don't go straight towards the elk and then veer off to your right or your left in a 90 and set up because then when he comes in, if he crosses that scent trail, he's going to whirl and take off. Does that make sense to you? Yes. Okay. So when I move ahead, I sit still. I don't be quiet or I don't make any noise. I just be quiet and wait and listen. And it, a lot of times you'll hear the brush cracking or he gets kind of like curious, where'd he go? So he'll bugle. So that'll give you an idea if you should stay put or just wait for him to move on by because he's probably coming into that sound. And those elk can key in on that sound to the inch. I don't care if they're a mile away. They know exactly where that sound come from. And that's what they're going to head to, but they're also going to keep the wind in their favor. So by you moving ahead in that half moon drive, he doesn't know that. So you get up there and you're ambushing him. Mm-hmm. If everything works great and he comes into that town and he comes by you, you know, don't get behind a tree. I usually just stand up in front of a bush and just sit there as calm as me and hope his head goes behind a tree. So that's when you draw and then hope he comes out from behind the tree <laughs> so you can get the shot, you know. And this is the only time I ever make any sound and that's to stop him with a cow call. If he comes out walking and he becomes broadside in a shooting lane, I cow call, he stops, he looks my way, don't close the arrow. That's kind of how I do it by myself. But here's another trick. If you're down there on that ambush and you've already moved forward and the bull hangs up again, don't call from that half moon sweep that you just made. Crawl back up the hill to where you're straight in line where you called before, but you're further forward. And you call again from up there and then do the same thing again. You do this half moon sweep working towards that bull because sometimes they don't commit to come all the way the first time. you got to get into their face, into their zone. Mm-hmm. But you've got to keep working that. And uh, you want them to think that your sounds are coming from someplace other than where you're going to set up at. And gotcha. yes, you got to be a little, you got to be a little stealthy as you're moving forward because they got good ears. Uh, you, you step on brush, they're going to key in on that. And then pretty soon they, they know it, but that elk sweep them down too. If they hear the snap of the brush, so be a little stealthy as you're moving forward. Um, it's a lot different than when you got two hunters, one caller, one shooter, you know, the guy that goes out to shoot, he, he becomes stealthy. But the guy in the background, he can make all the noise he wants. He can rub brush. He can roll rocks. He can stomp the ground. He can bugle. He can get away with a lot. Right. Because elk make a lot of and noise. Then, <laughs> yes, they do. But when you're by yourself, you you got to remember to be kind of a little bit more stealthier and uh, work in on those things. But one of the biggest things that I really have known and watch out is I make sure that area that he's coming into that town is scent free. I don't like to walk around out in there, out in front of where I called from. Boy, they can smell you. Even if you're 10 minutes later after you've been there, they can smell you. 
Oh, yeah. Real important to make sure you're sent free and keep that win in your favor. That's their biggest advantage. So that was I was actually going to be my question. I was I'm trying to visualize the win in this situation. So you're above mm-hmm. him, right? And mm-hmm. your thermals right. are going downhill, right? I guess. I mean, I guess it all depends on which way the prevailing wind is going. But I'm trying to figure out how you're trying to how you're staying out of scent cone if you're coming in from the top. If your scent's going well, that's that. That's the thing. As soon as you call from the top and you get an answer, then you've got to drop down to get that wind in your favor. You've got to cut over the hill and get down and not stay on top because you got to remember you're you're standing on top of the ridge and everything exactly a you know 180 degree left and right and behind you is where you've come from and usually the elk aren't there so everything you're dealing with is kind of in front of you off a 180 degree pattern mm-hmm. most of the time so even if you have to call and then back up 100 yards and then drop down lower to get that wind in your favor that's what you got to do you got to get out of that one spot quickly so they can't detect your wind and by getting down over the hill and getting that animal to come up a little bit and get him on the same level of that side hill, you're working him face-to-face at the same level. That gives you both the opportunity to be able to come together and feel more comfortable because he's going to use that wind to his advantage. If he gets there and gets within 100 yards and the wind is going downhill to the right of you, he knows that, so he's going to sweep down too. So that's when you got to learn to move forward and down wind and get ahead a little bit because, and hopefully he sweeps between you and where that sound come from. Okay. That makes sense? It, it does. I'm trying to picture it all. Um, and, and I'm trying to make it, you know, make you describe it in a visual way that the listeners can see it in their head. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess at first when you said, now, now I understand when you're sitting down, you're, you meant down, right? Downwind, not just remember down never to early. stay when you're by yourself. Just remember not to stay put from where you're calling from. Call, get an answer, and then just drop down, get the wind in your favor, and move forward, keeping the wind in your favor. But don't call when you do that because they, they can pinpoint it and then you move too. Just move ahead, ambush them. And then if you have to call again, move back up the hill where you kind of come from, but not, not going backwards, but move up the hill to about the same level and then call again and then sweep down and do it again moving forward. And that, that helps you get into their zone without them detecting you. 10 4. What if we're talking to this sounded like a scenario with, you know, with the lone bull? What about uh, one that has cows? Okay. All right. That's a whole different ball game. Most of the time, that bull will not come back to you unless the cows have bedded down and he doesn't want any intruders around. But I would still use the same scenario, the same, same half moon drive, the same movement. But I will have to close that gap a little closer, a little faster, and be careful of cows you got to watch out because there could be a cow this side of that bull 100 yards. Right. You don't know that for sure. So you've got to be real careful and stealthy about watch all the angles and movements and stuff out there because there can be a cow standing right there as you're moving in. And if she does the warning bark, 
you know, the rest of the elk know what that means and they're pretty much gone. So it's just one of those things. The way I can tell you to determine if there's a herd bull with cows or a lone bull is most of the time, if it's a lone bull, he's going to move. He's going to come towards you. Right. He may be a little bit cautious, but he is moving towards herd bull. He usually will bugle going away. And if they're going away, that means he's following cows. He can do two things. He can push his cows to get them out of there, away from his, another bull that's coming in to take them away. Or a cow decides that I don't like it here. I don't want another bull around. And she leaves. Well, the bull is going to follow. And in most cases, that's what happens. Your cows don't want another bull around them. So they just get up and leave and the herd bull follows. So to kill a herd bull is one of the toughest games, especially by yourself. There is. It's hard because of all the eyeballs, and then he just doesn't want to leave those cows. So you're better off and going to have more success picking on a lone bull, satellite bull. And uh, that brings me back to if it is a satellite bull and a lone bull, then you can throw a few cow calls in there even though you're bugling that, even moving forward. And that will kind of, you don't want to do a bunch of cow calling, but a little once in a while just to make him think, all right, there is a cow up there and maybe she's in heat too. And maybe I can whoop that bull off her. But uh, normally if you got a bull coming to you on bugles, stay with a bugle. If you've been cow calling and he's coming to a cow call, stay with a cow calling. Right. He likes he likes those sounds, but sometimes you have to throw in a mixture just to antagonize him a little more. But uh, I've always said if he's coming to a cow sound, stay with it. He likes it. He's coming to a bull sound, stay with it. But if he's hanging up and he's not doing what you need to do, in other words, you're not got control over him, you may have to throw some cow sounds in there once in a while along with a bugle. Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, there's so much everyday difference out there. You can go out there one day and they will not respond to a bugle no matter what, but they will respond to a cow call. And other days they will not respond to cow call, but they will respond to bugle. And also there's days when all they'll respond to is bugling and cow call. <laughs> so a person has to be prepared out there to do everything. I've had guys say, well, all I do is cow call. I don't even pack a bugle anymore. I'm going, well, what about the days when they won't answer a cow call? Right. You know, and I have found that most of the guys that say that they all they do is cow call is because they haven't learned how to bugle and don't have the confidence in the bugler. Cow calling is a lot easier to master. For sure. And that's usually the reason most people don't bugle because they just don't have the confidence that, uh, through my experience and success, probably 90% of the elk that I've called in have been bugling. Hmm. And I have called a few in cow calling, but I'm just going to tell you a little story here. Most people have heard of Steve Chapel out of Arizona, yeah. Chapel Outfitting. Good friend of mine. I drew a, an Arizona tag several years ago. So I called Steve up, and I've been friends with Steve even before that, but I just kind of was getting some hints of where to go, what to expect. I'd never been to Arizona. And he come back. The first thing he said is, 
leave your bugle tube at home. He said, you cannot get those elk to come to a bugle. He said, all they do is cow call. I went, really? I said, that's fascinating because you guys got 45 bulls per hundred cows. You'd think that they would want to fight each other. And he goes, nope, they've just been bugled at so much that they just won't come to it. And I said, well, do you bugle at all? And he goes, no, I said, I never did learn how. He said, I just didn't like to take that chance and screw it up. So I said, all I do is cow call. I said, all right, Steve, I'm going to, when I come down, I'm going to come to your camp and I'm going to sit down and talk with you a little bit more and you can direct me in some areas. So I did that. I get to his camp and I said, I want to hear your bugle, Steve. So he bugled and I went, mm, okay. You know, I wasn't totally impressed, but I was like, okay, <laughs> it'll work. <clears throat> so I said, let's go out. So I went out and fired off a bugle and bulls just screamed. And this went on and on the rest of the time I was there hunting. I had bulls coming in everywhere I could think of, left and right. I mean, they were just all over me, and that's all I did was bugle. <laughs> and that year, Steve started learning how to bugle a little better. And he had some pretty good success. But the next year, that's all he decided he was going to do is learn how to bugle. And his success ratio has increased so dramatically that he'll tell you this day, you call Steve up and he says, my bugling has helped me so much more than Cal Collin ever thought of. And uh, he just didn't want to play the game because he wasn't confident in his bugling. That's all it was. Yeah. You know, so... But you still got to learn to do it all. There's no doubt about it. And I don't want to be caught out in the woods on a day when they don't want to respond to a bugle and not have a cow call with me. For sure. Yeah. It's just, you got to stack the odds in your favor and, and, and use all, every tool you possibly can. You know, yeah. if you don't have the time to master it, you know, I get it. You know, mm -hmm. not everybody has time to sit there and just, uh, play with their bugle tubes, but you know, you just well, you know, if a person thinks about it and he's just starting to learn how to elk bugle and he's struggling with going with the low growls into the octave changes up to the high note and then he's struggling coming back down into the low notes and doing the chuckling, don't worry about that. Learn to do one good high note. Right. You know, that's that's more productive than anything and what I'm talking about one high note is like this. That's all you got to do. Yep. That is a sound that almost all elk can understand. They hear it, they know it, and it sounds like an elk. Right. And if you, you know, to do all those extra note changes and stuff, you got to learn how to position your tongue. You got to learn how to flex the muscles in your tongue, and you got to get the airflow to jive with your air pressure. There's a lot to think about at the same time, and yeah, elk calling on diaphragms, open read, it's a musical instrument. Mm -hmm. You have to learn to play it. You have to practice. And the more you practice, the more muscle memory comes between your tongue and your lung air pressure. And pretty soon it's just natural. You don't even have to think about it. But it does take practice. Yep. Yep. I, and it's, it's, a, it's a perishable skill, too. Like, I feel... You know, going into season, I'm always, you know, much better at it than I am, you know, if you told me right now, hey, go pick up a reed and, and bugle. Mm -hmm. I hadn't done it in, you know, X amount of months. 
So right. it's it's important to kind of like do it, practice as much as possible. You know, I I try to uh, take at least a month and a half, if not two months, before elk season and really start. You know, mm-hmm. every couple of days or every other day, whatever. Blast a couple bugles, yeah. you know, try some different sounds, some different inflections, and, and stuff like that. Because I think it's mm-hmm. e- I think it's easy to lose. You know, it is. I mean, the basics yeah. of it. No, like you can you can once you've got it, it's like riding a bike. As far as the basics are concerned, right. but it's the right. uh, you know the emotion, like you said, in the in the different tones and mm-hmm. inflections that they're. It's muscle memory, you know, it goes away, but it can come back yeah. easy. You just got to practice. Well, there's another thing, too, that helps a lot is every once in a while, turn on a recording or watch a video that has real elk bugling and listen to those sounds. And, you know, they make a lot of different sounds, but you can remember that in your mind and refresh it by watching that stuff. You, And that helps you when you put the read in your mouth, you can remember what that sounds like. and you will be able to accomplish that sound easier by knowing what it sounds like. For sure. You know, take a person who's never heard an elk bugle before. How am I going to teach them to make an elk bugle if they've never heard one? Right. Right. You know, it's tough. So the more you hear elk and the more you hear the different sounds they make, it becomes a lot easier to match that with a diaphragm because you know what it's supposed to sound like. And then, you know, your low pressure with your tongue and low air pressure is going to give you a low note. The harder you push up with your tongue and the more air you apply, the higher notes they get. And eventually you get to go and, all right, I just want that middle note to start with. Well, you know, it takes middle pressure, middle air pressure, mm-hmm. you know, not as much. And you just hit that and start off with it and you got it. But, you know, the variety of sounds that a guy can make on diaphragms is just tremendous once you learn it. You can hit all kinds of notes, all kinds of cow sounds, calf sounds, galunkin sounds. You know, it's, it's there. And by doing that, that makes that animal harder to understand that it is something dangerous where a repetitious sound, the same sound over and over by every hunter that walks through the woods, Mm-hmm. they become leery of that sound because they it locks in. It's kind of like a photographic memory, but it's a sound memory. And it locks in to the point that they go, I've heard that before, and the last time I went there, I smelled a human. Yep. You know, So I throw a lot of variations of sounds out there at them. Uh, they can't key in on that and can't remember what that sound was about and what encounter they had with that sound. No, I, I agree with you. I got a, a little example of that is, you know, years ago, like in the late 90s, the Hoochie Mama, you know, that was like a super popular call. And I remember that thing worked like a dream when yes, it first came it out, when it first came out. And then it wasn't three, four, maybe five years later, every time you used a Hoochie Mama, they they would turn tail and run. <laughs> That's like they, mm-hmm. lear- they learned, you know, they were so consistent and so well made in the fact that they were made consistently and had a great sound, but it was exact same sound. And all these elk got a- educated and 
And it might work mm -hmm. now, it might work still work for people out here. I'm sure there's people out there shaking their heads saying, oh, I use Ujuchimama all the time, it still works. But it's something that I definitely realized that they were able to key in on that very specific sound and, and know that eh, maybe uh, we don't go over there, you know. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. so. But that, you're very true on that statement. Uh, and it, the Ujuchimama is still a good call. And can be used if you use it in the proper way. You know, if you have an open reed call around your neck and you've got diaphragms in your mouth and then the hoochie mama in your pocket, do those all three in conjunction. Make three different sounds and then you've got something that they can't key in on. Right. But when you do the hoochie mama by itself every time, meow, 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 it's repetitious. And I can tell you that sound that comes out of the hoochie mama is more of a distress alert sound of a young calf than it is anything. Right, right. So it's putting those elk on alert, too, because there's something going on with that sound. They're going, man, he's, he's stressed out over something. Meow, meow, meow. Where if you did the back and forth, right. they can't key in on that one particular stressful sound. It's all natural again. Exactly. So, it, it is very important to learn a lot of different sounds out there in the woods and, and do them. It, you don't have to be perfect, but you need to learn different sounds and put emotions into it. Yeah. Yeah. Another example that's paralleled with it that I, that I gave, I give people is, so I do a lot of predator hunting and, mm -hmm. uh, I use a Fox pro, you know, I, I don't mount call because one, it's gives me a headache if I, have to blow on something that long for that that hard for that long but um sure. so you know using a electronic call the sound is obviously going to be <laughs> perfectly consistent and uh right so you know i learned years ago when they came out with the with a variable pitch on the on the machines that i ramp the pitch up and i come down and i I'm, i move the pitch up and down all the time constantly while i'm calling and it is up my success rate like tenfold and mm -hmm. I, and i equated it to that same you know hoochie mama scenario that you know they hear the same thing the same whining rabbit over and over and over and over and over and over again for 10 minutes straight or whatever you know they know something's up but if the pitch keeps right. changing and you keep changing you know volume and and and, and that's what i do completely different story mm -hmm. completely different story mm -hmm. Back in the 80s, when Abe and Sons Natural Elk Sound was going strong, that was something that, when that call first hit the market, and people loved that call, the elk responded to it, and it was, they were just tearing it up for about the first five years. Mm -hmm. And then slowly, it started going downhill, and the elk didn't respond as readily. And I was involved with Abe and Sons during those days, and, and I got to watch that happen and and the uh, same thing was back in Larry Jones days, Wayne Carlson, their calls when they first come out, they just tore it up. They their elk responded like Larry Jones intimidator. That thing sounded like a Canadian goose flying over. <laughs> but but it worked because it was a different sound. But right. it didn't take long for those elk to catch on to it because it was the same sound no matter who blew it. And a lot of people out there but so when I come out and figured I was going to design hell calls from a pilot plate 
that was my first thought was how can I make these calls more versatile, more different sounds? And with that pallet plate dome type call, it makes it every individual that puts that in their mouth will make a different sound than what I do. It just be a small little pitch off, but it's enough that the elk can't respond to it. And I'm going on 30 years now with that diaphragm and the elk have not keyed in on it yet. Yeah. They're still responding to it. It's because of the versatility that people can get out of that sound. Now, you relate that versatility to a grunt tube. Yeah, you can get grunt tubes to sound pretty much the same volume, the same depth, uh, all that. But when you add that diaphragm into that tube, that gives you a little more versatility too. But that is one reason why we try to come up with different calls every three to five years is to help aid in that not being able to key in on the same sound. Right. And it doesn't take much of a pitch, much of a change in volume or anything to make it sound differently from that last call. And uh, that's something that I've worked on for, for 30 years is trying to figure out how I can make calls sound differently from the last one I built. Two things there. Yeah, it makes the market of your selling of your calls better because you're going to sell more different things and uh, adds to your arsenal. But more important to me was I was trying to figure out how to make different sounds, different pitches out there so those elk would never key in on what we're doing to them. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why Smart. you see quite a few. Yeah, you, that's why you, are, you see in our company, Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls, why we have five different grunt tubes and we got 17 different mouth diaphragms because, you know, you've got to change up once in a while and then some of them fit people better than others. So that works out way too. But uh, more important to me was the different pitches I got and to the human ear. Sometimes we can't hear that different pitch change. But you take a piece of latex, you stretch it to 40 thousandths. You're going to have that sound on that latex on that frame. You take the same latex and stretch it to 45, it becomes a little higher note. You can't really hear it, but it's there. But right. the elk can hear it. So just stop and think. You've got latex that you can stretch from 20,000 to clear up to 65,000, 70,000 stretch. That's a lot of variations. That's just on a 4,000 thickness latex. And they make one, two, three, four, five, six thousand latex. So and you can come up with a lot of variations. But the problem people have is sometimes they can't operate the heavier latex as easy as they can the lighter latex. Mm-hmm. But that's okay because you're different than the other guy that can run 4,000 and all you can do is 3,000. Right, right. So you're getting a lot of pitch variations out there in the woods that's really going to help. And, you know, and, but. We're getting a lot of hunters in the woods anymore. I don't care what state you go in or where oh, you go. Yeah. You know, the back country, the low country, the private ground, it don't matter. We're running into a lot of hunters. Doesn't mean the elk won't come in. It's just you're going to have to learn to hunt them better. You're going to have to set up on them better. You just can't go out and make a sound and hope they come running to you. Sometimes it means that you can't say a word until you're within 50 yards of the elk and bugle at him. Then maybe he'll come running at you. Yep. So you've got to learn to adapt 
to the situation that's going on. And that's where a lot of hunters fail is they don't want to change. I learned how to do it this way. It worked this way. That last time, I'm going to stay with it. <laughs> but the animals, the animals don't look at it that way. <laughs> no, no. You, I think I, I've I've fallen victim to that myself a couple times in my life. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, before I let you go, I want you to, uh, if you could, share one of your you know solo hunting stories with us. You know, take us through the whole scenario and how it all went down. You know, I'm going to take you back to my very first elk I ever shot. <clears throat> oh, nice. And that was, oh, gee, I'm going to have to remember. That had to have been in the 70s, my first bull elk. I'd shot several cows before that, but my first bull elk with a bow. And I had been struggling for, oh, at least 20 days and couldn't get an elk to come. And I wasn't really what I call an exceptionally experienced bugler back in the 70s. I, I was doing okay, but, and I just hunting elk. We had elk everywhere, okay? So it wasn't like you had to really work this one particular bull. You had to work a bunch of them. But I remember crawling up to the top of the ridge, and the fog was coming up out of the draw towards me, and it was pretty heavy fog, but I knew I had the advantage because the wind was coming uphill, and it was early in the morning. I let out a bugle, and I had six different bulls answer me, and two of them stayed put. The others were coming towards me, the other four. So I said to myself, I said, well, how come those four are coming and the other two aren't? You know, and I, that just stuck in my mind for some reason, but I moved down the hill, found a place to set up, and I got on my knees, and huckleberry brush everywhere. And when I got to my knees, it was like, hang on, all I can see is just my eyeball level. And I thought about this, that I can't draw the bow because of the huckleberry brush. Hmm. Well, all of a sudden, it's too late to do anything. This bull is on me at five feet. He's standing right in front of me at five feet. And I was like, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? And I mean, this is the first bull that I called in to kill with a bow. And you're shaking. <laughs> I'm rattled. And I thought about, well, I'll just stand up and shoot. I said, no, he's going to see me. And whirl to take off. And I said, five feet, how can I miss? Well, I drew the bow back. And when I did that, he whirled his head and looked at me. And he stepped closer. And now he's within like six inches of the end of my arrow. Oh my God. And I was like, oh, God, I, can't, I don't have to worry about aiming. I let it go. And that bow, when he whirled, he whirled uphill towards me. And his feet went right past my nose. <laughs> I mean, that it almost hit me. It didn't hit me, but it almost did. And he whirls and he takes off. And when he did that, I'm looking at that arrow and I'm going, what the heck? That thing went in crooked. I mean, it's sticking out completely sideways. You know, it didn't look like a broadside shot. And I was like, hmm. Well, the bull runs and he runs about 100 yards down the hill and then he stops. And I'm watching him and pretty soon he turns and staggers a little bit. And I can see the arrow and I go, how in the heck did that arrow get in at that angle? I didn't think at the time, but the arrow didn't have time enough to straighten out when it come out of the bow. Nope. The, the string pushed the arrow into that bull being that close. And then I got to thinking, well, that's why the bow kind of come back towards me when I let it go. <laughs> but I ended up gut shooting that elk. It went in behind the shoulders, but it turned it so bad that it went back into the gut. 
So I had to sit there and watch that bull for six hours. Wow. And you don't think that is stressful. My first tell, he laid down and he kept lifting his head up and he'd stand up and then he'd lay back down and I was like, man, I can't move. And it was hard not to move, but I, I was able to put it together and that was my first elk. So, Dang. And, <laughs> and then when I walked up to that bull, it was like, oh, I got to go back to my truck and get my backpack, which back in those days was the old army backpack frames with a canvas on them. And, <laughs> you know, you never carried that stuff with you. Nope. But by myself, uh, I had to work that elk up and pack it out of there. And I still remember to this day how much of a struggle that was by myself to get that elk out of there. And I didn't think about deboning. I didn't think about taking the clothes off and the hide off. I just quartered him up and threw him on the pack frame and took off up the mountain. And nowadays when I go, I, I mean, a lot of that stuff is left in the woods, so I don't have as much weight anymore, and it makes it a lot easier. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Learning how to quarter an elk up and take care of it now is so much better than it was in the early days. We just, most of the time, we tried to just get them out whole, but that was impossible, too. Sometimes it's such a big animal. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I've been lucky. Uh, I've been lucky two times now where the elk ran and died like right near a road and I've been able to drive the truck pretty much right up to it and get it in whole. <laughs> but, but, uh, other than you that, now it's, it, it's always a, uh, it's always a pack out yeah. of some sort. Yeah. It doesn't happen very often, but you sure appreciate it when it does come easy. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you have time, I got one other story. Yeah, absolutely. Just kind of cool. This fall, uh, opening day, August 30th, here in Idaho. And I like to go out early, less pressure. The elk haven't been hammered on as much. You don't hear as much bugling. But when you do get one to answer, you got a good chance of him coming in. So my hunting partner and I hiked all day. We heard one little squeal on the draw, no no action. But we hiked quite a ways through windfalls. Well, on the way back that evening, we come to within about 600 yards of the highway where we had parked the pickup. And on the other side of the highway of the unit is not open to archery. On the side we are is open for archery. We decided that let's set in our tree stands, which we had tree stands nearby, and let's just take off the evening and re relax with good and go fresh in the morning. So I crawl up my tree and we hiked all day and was just in our t-shirt, didn't have a coat or anything. I sat in the tree and the sun went down and I started shaking like, dang it, I didn't realize it was going to get that cold. So we were sweaty all day and, you know, that kind of stuff. But pretty soon I'm shaking. I said, man, I don't want to deal with this. And I pick up just a few hundred yards away. I said, I'm going to go get in the thing of where it's warm. So I let my bow down. It hits the ground. And all of a sudden, right out in front of me, I went, crap. So I reached down to pull my bow back up. And I got pulling. I said, well, he ain't got to come over. I only got 20 minutes of daylight. I won't have time to get him sucked in over here. So get my pack on, down the tree I go, grab my bull and I head up over the ridge. And he bugles again. I'm going, well, that sounds like it's a little further over. So I keep walking and I get to the edge of the highway on the cut bank and I'm looking at the highway and the bull bugles, he's on the other side. <sighs> so, well, it's too late to worry about that. So I went ahead and bugled that again. When I did that, a bull to my right answered me on my side. 
And all of a sudden, here he comes. And he's coming across the draw, and he gets within 20 yards, but he's quartering frontal to me. I'm a full draw on him. And all of a sudden, here come 20 cows out of the timber and run right up to him. And they had him covered. And I'm going, oh, it's getting dark, and I can't can't find nothing to shoot through all the cows. And I was a full draw, and right behind me, I mean, this bull just screamed down my neck. And I just kind of peeked to my left, and I could see that bull stand at 10 feet looking at me and drool coming down his jaw. And I said, if I move, he's going to whirl and take off. But oh, well, I got to take the chance. I knew that sometimes they'll run out and they'll stop, look back. So I turned, faced him, and he spun. He runs out another 10 yards and turned around broadside. And I went, schwack. And hit him perfect. But he runs down to the highway off the cut bank and hits the center line, the yellow line. He's running up that highway, and I'm watching him, and he's starting to get his butt staggering. And the blood's pumping up both sides, and that yellow line's turned red. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and I'm going, this is going to be cool, <laughs> right in the middle of the highway. Oh, my God. But he walks over He walks over to the bank to the wrong side, and I said, don't do that. And he did. He falls over and rolls down underneath the highway on the wrong side. Oh, Jesus. Which I'm not worried about being eagle because I can prove that I shot yeah, him on this side. Yeah, the blood trail. There's a blood trail, so it's not a big deal. So I went down and took pictures, gutted him, opened him up and propped him up for the night because it's getting late. And I said, hey, he'll be fine here. It's cool enough. And I uh, had him opened up. So I went back to the pickup, which is 75 yards from the elk on the highway. <laughs> I get to the pickup and George is in there and he's got the windows rolled up. And I popped on the window and. He rolls down the window and he goes, he said, you get into anything? I go, well, maybe. He said, I got cold. I said, I had to come to the pickup. And I said, yeah, I started to too. I said, you didn't hear all the action? He goes, what action? And I had bulls bugling over right there on that hillside, 50 yards, 75 yards from right here. He goes, no way. And I said, yep. So he went up there with me and he went over the bank and he seen me elk. I didn't go down there with him. It was dark. And he yelled up, he said, you lucky sucker. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, well, that's, I'd rather be lucky some good and not get one. <laughs> exactly. So we decided, this is where it gets interesting. We decided to just, in the morning, bring my razor up with a wind shot, cut him in half, and just slide him up the bank and throw him in the pickup. Mm-hmm. So we took George's pickup up there and my razor in daylight, and we're down there and cut the animal in half, and we're winching him up. And as we're winching him up, there's traffic going by and like four to five rigs went by. And when we loaded the last half in, a couple more rigs went by. And I told George, I said, when we get to town, we got to call the fishing game. He goes, why? I said, somebody will turn us in knowing that they think we shot that elk on the wrong side of the highway. Mm-hmm. And I said, let's just go to town, call the game warden and explain. So, you know, it looks better. So we stopped by our camp, hung the elk up in the trees, and I just started to go out the door, and my wife was in the camper, and up pulls the game warden rig. And I said, I knew it. So I walked outside, and his name was Lucas. He's a new game warden. And I said, I put you here to check on an illegal elk take. And he goes, yeah, I am. And I, he said, well, tell me your story. And I said, now this is what happened, just like I said. And he goes, well, I thought that might be. And he said, I got to go check it out. It's my job. I got turned in. I said, all right, I'll ride with you. So we ride up there and uh, get to the spot. And 
he gets out and I get out and walk over and he walks to a tree and he says, well, I can see where the tracks come down here. He grabs that limb and he pulls his hand down it, just turned red and he goes, good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, my arrow's up there. So I walk up the bank and he goes with me and I said, I shot from that spot right there towards the highway and my arrow should be just right in here. And he said, right here it is. I went over looked at it and it's full of blood, you know, still. And I said, are we good? And he goes, yep. No problem. Nice. You know, so anyway, I got an easy out this fall, <laughs> but had to deal with a game warden, but nothing happened illegal. And uh, it's kind of interesting how, and I don't blame the people, you know, because I probably would have done the same thing yeah, if I seen yeah. somebody hunting on the wrong side of the highway and they didn't see what happened. So they just assumed that I shot it on the wrong side and they wanted to make sure it was taken care of. So I didn't have no ill feelings towards those people at all. No, no, you can't. So they did. No, they did their job. Exactly. So, well, awesome. but, uh, that was a good story. Couple things that, <laughs> yeah. A couple of things I wanted to mention real quick on your podcast. Was sure. When, when I sold the business and I decided I wanted to come out with my own signature series line of calls, like we have done for Steve Chappell, Chris Titus, Corey Jacobson, my son, and I decided, you know, it'd be kind of nice to have a, a touch of my own signature series since I'm not really the owner anymore, but I can be involved better if I had my signature series. So throughout all the years that I've been designing calls and tubes and stuff, I put together some unique type of calls that all the ideas and designs that I've kind of held in the back of my mind, I finally put them together. So. I have come out with three different diaphragms, and uh, they're on the RTS frame, Rocky Top frame, and it's a different dome shape. It's a little more gentle on the roof of your mouth. It has little flares that kind of curve out a little bit to let the latex travel better inside that frame. And the first one we call double, D-A-B-U-L. And this is one is made with a non-latex material. And people go, what do you mean, non-latex? There's people out there that are, are allergic to latex. Yes. So they can't use a mouth diaphragm. And I said, I will build one one day when I find the right material. Well, I'm never going to tell anybody what this material is made of, but it works. And it works unreal compared to latex. And it's, people can now use it that are allergic to latex. And it makes some beautiful sound, especially cow calling. I'm going to do that real quick on it. And then I'm going to Google on it. That so, is non-latex material. That sounds good to me. It's got a nice rasp to it. Yeah, it does. It's got more nasal to it. It's got yeah. more rasp, rally to it. Um, works easy. So that's one of the new diaphragms. And then the other two diaphragms, one of them is called the Elk Slayer. And what I've done, instead of having like 3,000 or 4,000 latex, I split the difference. I went with 3.5, stretched a little different, so you have a little easier cow call sound a little different pitch than any other diaphragm we made. And then the other one is called the Raptor. 
mm-hmm. and it is made on 4.5 instead of four or 5,000 latex and it strips. And it's got a little, this call you can really stream on and get some good volume and high streaming notes and chuckles for a latex call. It works really well. But then to go further, I designed a new tube. And one of the biggest complaints people have is the tubes are too, too big. I don't want to carry them. Mm. You know, they're awkward and they are, but they work. So mm-hmm. I put my mind together and designed a call, you know, tube called the Bull Basher, 18 inches overall length, which is quite a bit shorter than most of the 22, 24 inch tubes out there. But the first nine inches of it, it is an insert aluminum piece that goes inside plastic. And then inside that aluminum piece, I have what we call the splitter. The splitter is a piece of aluminum inside that resembles the helical on the aero shaft. So when you blow air through that helical, it helps stabilize the airflow and build proper back pressure. Mm-hmm. It intensifies the higher notes. The plastic on the end gives you that good deep bass sound that you was hearing and the deep chuckle sound. And then I wrapped it all continuous with a kind of like a foam wrap that like is on a, it's neuroprene is what it is, like a, a wetsuit. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's real thin, it's real light, and that covers up the aluminum part so you don't have to worry about it dinging, making noise. Nice. And, uh, of course, it has the boot over the end to help protect the plastic part showing so you don't hit brush, make dings. Really super light. It's, uh, if I remember right now, it was 18 ounces. Oh, hell yeah. It's all it weighs. Yeah, it's cool. Where, and then I decided... That, I'm sorry, which one was the, what was the name of that one? It's called the Bull Basher. Bull Basher. I'm actually looking on your on the site right now. Yeah. Aluminum gives you the opportunity to carry out some different octaves that you can't get in plastic, and it also get, creates more volume when you need it. Mm-hmm. But if you have too much aluminum, in other words, a full tube, you kind of over do things it becomes a little more volume and more than you need it's still a good sound call when it's aluminum but sometimes it's a little overbearing when it's all aluminum so i decided to make it part aluminum as an insert and part plastic so i create the sounds that are good on both ends and your sounds that are created always start at the beginning of your tube and if if they're wrong, the big tube on the end is going to make them sound bigger wrong. Right, exactly. But, but if you create them perfectly at the very beginning, the bigger tube will amplify it, making them sound better. And that's why I created this tube. It's different than anything that's ever been on the market. And again, it has a little different sounds than the other tube. So we're creating that avenue for the elk not to understand those pictures again. And we created a new sound. Let me so, let me ask you this. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to think of the one that I use of yours. It's the same that's in the Elk 101 calling system. That's the same tube that I use of yours. Yeah, that's that's called the Bully Bull Extreme. Yeah, okay, that's the one I use. The Bully mm-hmm. Bull is yeah, the, that's, that's is the shape of the mouthpiece the same on this new? Like as far as where your lips touch, because that's the one thing I love about this. I have I have like three different tubes right now that I've used. Uh, mm-hmm. I, have, I have a Phelps one. I have this one. And um, 
Okay. I don't even remember what the other you, brand is. I think it's a uh, uh, yeah. Greg Berry. This is a right. This is a neat deal about this too. Mm-hmm. It has that enlargement snap-on ring that is exactly the shape as the volleyball extreme that you got in your hands. Right? Okay, good because that's what I was like that yeah. the best about this is that the the shape yeah. of the mouthpiece. And it will come with that piece snapped on there, so you can. If you don't like the larger mouthpiece, you can remove that and go to the smaller one. So you have that versatility of choosing which way. But it will come with it snapped on because I find that more people like the larger mouth openings than they do the smaller. I do. I like to put my lips yeah. almost inside of it as, as opposed to around it. Right. Yeah. And that's the way this is. Uh, but I wanted the option in my tube to where people could use a small too if they wanted to because some people like myself would rather use a small and the reason right. I like the small is because I like to put my lips and my mouth around mm-hmm. I like to put my lips and my mouth around the outside and bugle into it so it gives me more of a sound to the sound with your lips put together I just but, feel like, I feel like I could do uh, like better lip Lip ball. Lip ball when it's inside is versus outside. Mm-hmm. Well, you can. And I, you still do the lip ball in, even in the small one. But I'm talking just the octi bugle, and I like to do my mouth on the outside. Yeah, it's but definitely when I go, deeper. Yeah. Yeah. And then when I go to the lip ball, then I slide my lips into the small opening, which is the same size as like a trumpet, which I, I play trumpet, so it doesn't bother me any. Gotcha. But... Uh, it does come with a larger enlargement ring, so you got the same size as what you got on the volleyball string. Same shape, too. Cool. But uh, and then the, th- the other thing that I designed was a new open reed cow call. And everybody going, well, what can you make different on an open reed cow call? They've got a reed and a soundboard, and you use your lips. And I said, well, number one, the barrel has a very small opening on the end that the volume comes out. And they go, well, how do you get the sound out? And I said, it comes out because most of your sound comes out of the soundboard and the reed. It doesn't come out the other end that much. And so what I'm wanting to create is a softer, nicer, subtle sound to those raspy, harsh, open reed sounds that most of them get. Hmm. And then on the reed, I've taken a cut on the end that you blow into on that reed, I've cut a little V-notch to where it looks like a fork and tongue. Mm-hmm. And that makes that reed more subtler, not so raspy. And then the soundboard, the part that goes over the top of the reed, acts as a hood and comes out over the top of the reed and stops that reed in the correct spot when it's traveling back up as you're releasing your pressure with your lips. So you don't get those goosey sounds no more. Gotcha. So this is what's, and this call is called On Fire. Fire up your next bowl with a new on fire cow call. Here we go. Got the right bottom end, got the nasal sound all the way from the top to the bottom. Nice. It's a pretty cool little call. But that's what's new for me on the signature series line of calls. So People listen to this, go on our website at Rocky Mountain Honey Calls, and you can look them up or feel free to call me. Um, one other thing I got going is 
we also have a new podcast YouTube thing we're putting together, and it's called Outdoor Wild Legacies. Cool. And that's spelled O-W-L for owl, knowledge, wise old owl, you get it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and our subject is about going back and talking with people that are the forerunners in the industry and people that have contributed to hunting of all aspects, outdoor activities, whatever, and show that this information was gathered from people in the forerunner and now is applicable to be obtained on a phone, on a computer. And too many people in our younger generation think that all this information just come off from a phone or a computer. <laughs> they, don't under- they don't understand how much work these forerunners in the industry put into developing this stuff so you, the younger generation has it much easier. Oh yeah. You can become a professional elk or elk hunter in 10 minutes online now. Yeah, I mean, it, obviously there's a you bit know? of exaggeration to that, but it's true to an extent. I mean, the learning curve is just ridiculous right now. Like It is. You know, guys you know, that are we- going in way, 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 way more prepared and uh, having a better understanding of, you know, and I, obviously, I'm not as I'm not as old as you, but I'm I'm 45, and I and I started hunting really early. I was five years old when I started hunting, at, you know, so late 70s, early 80s, and you know, we didn't have any of that. Like everything was no here, go. And and to be honest with you, my dad, yeah, I learned you know woodsmanship from him, but his his he never he didn't bow hunt number one, so I was self taught bow hunter. And they mm-hmm. hunted, you know, whitetail back east. And the idea was go find a spot that looks good, sit down by a tree and wait for, you know, not even in a tree stand because tree stands really didn't exist then. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, just go sit there and wait for a deer to come by in a big orange right. suit and shoot it with a 35 Marlin. You know, that, <laughs> that's what that's what hunting was. So, yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. It, and then nowadays, like, if it's... You tell you take whitetail hunting. Come on, think about how technical whitetail hunting is. Like, did you ever think in a million years it would be so involved? Like, you know, with all the calls and the the tree stand, and the gears, and the scent control, and the different. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, technology is overtaken, and, and and but it's just it's it's it is what it is. You know, <laughs> that's what it is now, and it's just there's a exactly. lot more information out there for people to. Yeah, and I just want this younger generation to appreciate what we had to go through to learn. We didn't have nobody to teach us. We didn't have computers. We didn't have videos. Yeah. We had to get out there and bust our butt and figure it out. And then we figured it out and we're transferring that information to you guys. And so many younger generation is basically just wanting to erase history and not have that stuff out there for them to be available. And I guess take credit for it, I guess. Yeah, it's weird, but all I can say is, if you erase history, the world will not survive. For sure, no, it's done. It's done because we have to learn from the mistakes of other people. And if you just don't have any history to learn from, you're going to make mistakes all the time. That's for sure. That is uh, for sure. Anyway, the owl owl podcast. We've got people involved in that. I'll just mention their names, but. Lance Sellers, uh, Jim Brennan, Kent Anderson, Josh Fields, 
and Eric Mouse, who is our editor and does the podcasting for us. But uh, I think you've met Aaron before, but maybe not. I, I I know I know him. I don't I don't think we actually met in person, but I I know okay. I know of him for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what we plan on doing is having also an online shopping store, so if people can get good discounts and get good access to some of the products that we use. Just like it's a sponsorship deal, nice. you know. And we got Hex Vortex Optics, Liquid Products, Black Creek Guide Gear Backpacks, Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls, Element Arrows, Grim Grim Reaper Broadheads. Montana Canvas, ASAP Camel, King Camel, Bendable Products, and uh, 6 a.m. Cool. I'm not sure about 6 a.m. I've heard of them, and I'm not sure exactly what they're all about, but I understand they're about lightweight camping gear. Yeah, I use use their little stuff sacks for inside my backpack Mm. to organize stuff. They got a lot of cool mm-hmm. stuff like that, little uh, tarps and all kinds of cool little knickknacky stuff. They've been around for a little while. My my friends in uh, Oregon, I went out hunting with them, and they they had introduced me to, it and I bought a couple things because it's nice, lightweight, durable stuff. So, yeah, cool. Our plans are to do little short instructional video clips and podcast clips to help people, and you're more than welcome along with us if you want to join in on those links and we can share each other's links and stuff back and forth and you know if it helps promote you that's great we're, we're all willing to do it sounds good sounds good okay all right rocky well i want to thank you for coming on and uh sharing your knowledge and stories with us um love having you on and uh i hope you do well with that uh that new endeavor all right well thank you for having me on it's always a pleasure to talk with you and hope we can do more in the future for sure well that's it for this episode but before i let you go i have one more thing to ask of you i want you to take a serious look at your relationship with hunting and the outdoors and what it really means to you now i want you to picture if all that goes away not a great picture right it's important for us hunters to stick together and have one unified voice we need to stand for each other and not just when it affects us or what we do not when it's just convenient but really stand up with each other lock arms and anytime someone comes to challenge our heritage we make one unified voice we are stronger together remember that i promise you that if you stand up with your fellow hunters even if it's something you don't do i know we i brought up this in my podcast several times about deer hunters not caring about lion hunters not caring about you know bear hunters and so on and so forth it doesn't matter if it's something that you do if you're not a turkey hunter you're not a a bear hunter you're not a lion hunter it doesn't matter you're a hunter you're a sportsman you need to stick together i promise you if you do that we are strong and our voice is loud and they will not come for what you love thanks for tuning in and we'll see you in the next one